Taylor, are we going to finish up the last one, or did we start it here? Remember that we stopped somewhere in the last one, kind of like almost. Did we? Do you remember? I thought we finished. I think we finished. Yeah, it was It was really pretty, pretty brutal last time. Last time was when we went through that whole long handout on all the kings of Judah and Israel, remember? I promise it's not ever going to be that intense again. <laughs> that was... That was, but we're going to, I'm going to refer back to it and, and say, well, do you remember this and do you remember that? Because, because that was important oh, information. Oh, I remember, we didn't go completely over all of these. Correct. Things. And, and okay. we will refer to that, that handout okay. on the kings of That's Israel right. and the kings of Judah, we will ha- refer to as we go through oh, Jeremiah okay. and we'll okay. finish it up as we go through oh, Jeremiah. Cool. Okay. I just got you to where Jeremiah starts. Okay. That's why. Okay. That's a good question. Alrighty, I need a contestant, please. I need someone. Yay, yay, yay. Okay, Ashley. Yeah, you don't have to go anywhere. You can just you can just sit there for the moment. I can buy a bell. <laughs> Behind one of these doors is a fabulous prize. It's something shiny. It is circular and flat. Women crave it. Men spend hard-earned money for it, and it's all yours if you pick the correct door. But behind the other prize is something bitter, hard. You're completely avoided if you have this. So now, which one will you choose? Anybody want to help her? Can you tell the difference? Choose that one. <laughs> All right, open it up. See what you got. Uh, you got the bitter one. <laughs> that's the hard and bitter one. That's your. That's your. That people avoid you if you're taking cough drops. Yes, but you can have this one. That's your consolation prize. So you can see what's in it. Chocolate. It was, which is kind of silly, but just that's just an example of the way it is to live life and make choices while you're living life if you've cut off communication from God. The world gives you no hint. The world wraps the bitter one up in the shiny package. Okay. And even if there are good choices in life, you have no way of knowing the good from the bad because you can't tell from looking at the outside. All right. Now... We're going to play the game the way God plays it, okay? And I need somebody to volunteer to be an Israelite. We're going to pretend like we're an Israelite. I have an Israelite. Oh, Tony. All right. This is how God plays the game. First off, the prizes are way too big to be held in those little packages. In fact, these are supposed to look like doors, okay? Because the prize is the path behind the door. The door is simply what you're entering through. When you leave here today, Mr. Israelite, you will leave either by door number one or door number two. Behind one of these doors lies a life like you've never imagined. For the rest of your life, you will have all the food, clothing, and housing you'll ever need. In fact, You'll be so prosperous, your neighbors will be begging you for money. 
And you'll have such a great security system that you will never be burgled. None of your possessions will ever be stolen. You can live in perfect security. And you will live to a ripe old age. You will have lots of children and lots of grandchildren. And you'll never be sick again. And your family will never be sick. And your friends will never be sick. And every seventh year, you can take the whole year off and not work. And that same year, all your debts will be canceled. And every 50th year, any property you've sold will be returned to you free of charge. Gratis. 100% free. No strings attached. Could you handle that? Does that sound like a good plan? That's a good prize, but behind the other door lies a very bitter prize. If you choose that door and that path, everything you do will be unsuccessful. You, your friends, and your family will contract and die of painful, incurable diseases. Thieves will break into your home and take everything you've got. You'll never be able to rest because no matter how hard you work, you will never be able to keep your money or your possessions. You will live in constant fear. And eventually, you'll be kidnapped, brutally beaten, and starved, and you'll never see your home again. Hmm, big choice. Be careful. In, in this game, now, I mean, obviously, you're going to have to pick door one or door two. Anybody want to venture a guess as to door one or door two? <laughs> There's not many clues, but in this game, you have a lifeline. You want to use your lifeline? See that telephone over there? Pick up that telephone. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, ding-a-ling-a-ling. Hello, this is Moses. It's door number one. Now choose door number one. Choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. All right, you ready to make your choice? Yeah. Which one do you choose? Just assuming that was Moses, I choose door number one. Door number one! Yahoo! <laughs> okay. Well, as far-fetched as that sounds, that's exactly how the Lord gave the choices to the Israelites. And those were exactly the choices he gave them. I did not exaggerate any of that. That's straight out of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Okay? Uh, it's straight out of the choices that Moses laid directly before the Israelites. All those specific properties, All those specific properties, being, returned property being returned, no sickness. All of those promises were what God promised them. In his covenant with them. He said, if you will follow me and trust me and be, let me be your God, this is what you will have. And if you don't, you know, if you persist in doing it your way, this is what's going to happen to you. And, of course, they chose door number one. You know, who wouldn't? But Moses said, now be careful when you choose door number one, when you choose life and all those good promises. In Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19, he said, make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today 
whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those other nations. Be sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath, oath he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, oh, I will be safe, even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. And Mo Moses said, don't just stand there and say you want the blessing and in your heart figure you're just going to go do you what your own thing later. You know, in fact, Ecclesiastes five verses four and six say it's better not to make a vow at all than to make a vow to God and then break it. And Moses, you know, laid out to the Israelites exactly the things that I laid out to you, Tony, verbatim. I mean, those were exactly the promises. And he said, you know, if you choose door number two, the, the bitter path, if you choose to go away from the Lord, in Deuteronomy 29, 22 through 24, it says, your children who follow you in later generations and foreigners who come from distant lands will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases with which the Lord afflicted it. And all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it's because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods they did not know, gods he had not given them. And therefore the Lord's anger burned against this land, so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. Now, keep in mind, all of this is being written before they ever enter the promised land, okay? He's telling them all the way through to the end what will happen. He said, if you choose the, the bitter path and go, turn away from your Lord, not only will all these calamities befall you, but they will be so bad that all of the people around you will marvel at how bad it is in Israel and say, what on earth did these people do to make God so mad at them? Okay, and the answer will be they went and followed other gods, you know. So as we saw last week, the Israelites, of course, did the worst of the worst. They swore to the Lord they wanted to be part of the covenant with him. They said, oh, yes, Lord, we love you. We're going to be your people forever. And then they promptly went and did what they wanted and worked and worshiped idols. They accepted his blessings, and then as soon as things were good, they turned right around and started building idols on all, under every spreading tree, on every high hill. And what they said in their hearts was, oh, the Lord's not going to notice. He's, he won't care. He, he's not going to do anything. You know, and it's spread out over a lot of years, just like we're in right now. You know, we go from day to day to day, and we're not struck by lightning, so we're thinking, oh, okay, the Lord doesn't really care about the sin in my life, you know? He's not going to, you know, it's okay. We do that in our relationships with each other, you know? Just because somebody isn't confronting you today about the sin in your life, we just assume, well, it must be okay with them. They can live with that, you know? They can't live with it any more than the Lord can live with it. And then there was this one part of God's commandment that is like a sore subject with him. In addition to the not worshiping other idols, there's a second part that's almost, not quite, but almost as important. 
And that was the whole concept of Sabbath rest. I mean, you wouldn't probably figure that that would be so important. You'd think it'd be don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. No, the commandment that made the most, that was the most important to the Lord, other than, you know, love the Lord your God and only the Lord your God, was the Sabbath rest. We all know that Sabbath is what? You six days, you rest on the seventh, right? Okay. But did you know there was supposed to be a Sabbath rest for the land every seventh year? Now, these are farmers, right? God said, well, I'm going to give you enough harvest in the sixth year to last you. Okay. How many years, how many years worth of harvest would that sixth year have to give for, for the land to have a Sabbath rest for one year? Two. See, y'all are city, city dwellers. It has to be three. You have to have stuff to eat the sixth year, stuff to eat the seventh year, and stuff to eat the first year because you planted at the beginning of the first year and you won't harvest till the second one. So God did the math right. And he said, I will give you three years worth in the sixth year. So the land can rest. And if that land's resting, who also is resting? The people, right? Because we're not sowing. We're farmers. We get a rest that seventh year. And after seven sets of seven years, that's, you know, after 49 years, the 50th year, is the year of Jubilee. It had a special name. God named it the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all your debts were canceled. Any land that belonged to a tribe that they had sold was returned to them, free of charge. Anybody who was an Israelite who had um, sold himself as an indentured slave or a servant, indentured servant, was to be set free. This is a concept, this concept of rest has not gone away for the Lord. It's gone away out of our teaching, you know, because we think of it as part of the law. But if you think about it, Sabbath rest was commanded by the Lord before there was law. Sabbath rest was part of the creation. That's when it was commanded, way thousands of years before the law, all right? And it's a concept that we need to ponder in our hearts. What does Sabbath rest mean to you? If the Lord is commanding us to rest, what does that look like in your life? Does it happen in your life? Is it important? You know, this is the, this is something to ask the Lord. Is it important still to you, Lord, that I have a Sabbath rest? What does that mean to a modern person? And I, and I, I have to tell you that this year for me is a year of Jubilee. It is a year in which the Lord is breaking barriers in my life that I fought. For many years. And he's promised. To heal me of these things. That have held me down. And held me back. That to me. Is what year of jubilee means. In the modern world. You know. But there's also the concept of just resting. Well. Did the Israelites rest? 
No. Okay. They didn't. And in fact, when they had those fabulous harvests, did they give the credit to God? No. They gave the credit to the idols. You know, it just boggles the mind. And they did this over and over and over again. And the Lord sent them prophets to remind them they didn't have this all written down like we do. You know, we we can go look these prof- promises up. We can look up the promises and we can look up the consequences anytime we want to. They didn't have that. They only had the oral tradition. And, and God sent prophets to them, you know. To, to tell them in, in that grid that I gave you last time, you'll see under each king at least one, maybe more, prophet was sent. You know what they did to the prophets? They killed them. But the prophets kept coming back and kept reminding the people of what the Lord was going to, all these terrible consequences that were going to happen to them if they didn't turn around and worship the Lord wholeheartedly, if they didn't belong to him wholeheartedly. And it wasn't, you know, the Lord being vicious. It was the Lord trying to pry their fingers off of these idols to say, you know, these ter- this terrible thing is going to happen to you, and this terrible thing is going to happen, and this terrible thing is going to happen. It's like telling somebody... You know, if you go into a homosexual relationship and have unprotected sex, you know, AIDS is a real consequence. These are, these are realities the Lord is trying to warn them of. And it's just as life and death important as the warning about AIDS, you know. And so God was very serious about it. But that pro- the prophecy that Moses gave them that we read just a minute ago, where, where Moses laid out the promises laid out the curses and then told them, you know, if you go down the bitter path and go your own way, here's what's going to happen to you. There was another part to that promise. And this is the, 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 the last part of the prophecy. It's in Leviticus 26. It says, but if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them. So I sent them into the land of their enemies Then, even after they're in captivity, when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And then in Deuteronomy it says, And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then... The Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And notice that he said he's going to circumcise your heart and the heart of all your descendants. All of these promises and prophecies were prefaced with language that said the decision you're making today is not just affecting you. It affects your children. It affects your grandchildren. It affects all of your descendants. And what he didn't say, but what was true, was it affects the whole world. It affects us. Because all of those promises about long life and no disease and 
you know, prosperity and peace all around, all of those promises, you've read Revelation and you know that they will happen, but they're just, they're not going to happen now until the second coming of Christ. Because that's when the Israelites are finally going to Jesus as their God. You know, when they're finally going to understand how loved they are and worship only the Lord our God. So that gets us up to Jeremiah. Get to Jeremiah 1. Open it up there. It's been about a 100 years since the northern tribes of Israel were carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. And all that's left is the little tribe of Judah. Um, Simeon is a tribe. It's also in the south. It's kind of in the middle of Judah. So um, depending on the terminology you use, it, it when you say Judah, it can be also referring to the tribe of Simeon. But we're just going to call it Judah for, 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 for ease. And everybody else has been carried off into captivity into the north. Jeremiah 1.1. These are the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. That tells us a lot. For one thing, Anathoth is about three miles northeast of Jerusalem. So he's right there near the capital city. He's from a family of priests. That's a hereditary, linear kind of thing. So his dad was a priest. Jeremiah is a priest. Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we know that that's about 626 BC. The people had made Josiah king at the age of eight after his dad was assassinated. And according to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, Josiah had become a follower of the Lord God sometime around the age of 16. So he had ruled for eight years. Uh, uh, there was a very powerful priest who was kind of pulling all the strings at that point. And from him, obviously, Josiah learned a love of the Lord God. So when he was 16, he basically gave his life to the Lord. He's now 21 years old. And for the past year, for just about a year, he's been working to purge Judah of, of the idols. He's trying to tear down all the high places. He's destroying the Asherah poles. He's pulling down all the idols. He's having all the altars to Baal being torn down. But it's a ton of work, and it's going to take a long time. It's going to take years to get it all done. But he's made a great start just in this one year. So if you if you're in if you want to flip back to First Kings chapter thirteen, verse one, um, I want you to look at something. It's a story we read together last week, or the last time we got together, and it happened about somewhere between nine thirty and nine o nine BC. Verse one, First Kings chapter thirteen, by the word of the Lord, a man of God. That would be a prophet. Okay, that's another word for prophet. A man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam, who was the king, was standing by the altar to make an offering. And the man of God cried out against the altar because this was not an altar of God. This was an altar of Baal. It was an idol altar. And the man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. Oh, altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That prophecy 
naming Josiah was 300 years before Josiah was born. That's not the only place in the Bible that a prophecy specifically names the king hundreds of years before he happened. Um, Cyrus, um, King Cyrus was named. And there are other instances, but, but the Lord is able to talk through these prophets in very specific ways. And this was a specific one. So now, if you turn to Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 5, that's the part of Chronicles where what actually happened in Josiah's reign is written down. Second Chronicles 34, verse 5. You're right in the middle of Josiah's reign, or at the beginning of Josiah's reign. And it says, He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. It's recorded in the official annals of King Josiah that he actually did exactly what was prophesied 300 years earlier. That's a good thing that Josiah is doing this. He's a young king, but his timing couldn't be better because to, to throw his trust to the Lord God Almighty, because here's our famous map. The great world power right now is Assyria up here. All right. Their capital city is Nineveh. Let me find Nineveh in here. Nineveh, it's right over here. Okay, Judah is little teeny tiny thing right down here. Okay, by this by this lake. Egypt is over here. Egypt, in fact, you know, if if you've been paying attention, you know that the big powers are, were Assyria and Egypt, and they've been fighting each other for hundreds of years now. Well, at this point, when Jeremiah is called, Assyria has gained the upper hand, and Egypt has been under Assyrian control effectively for about 50 years now, okay? The northern tribes of Israel were, have already been captured and made slaves up here in Assyria. They've been taken captive and made slaves up here in Assyria. And last year, the great Assyrian ruler, Ashurbanipal, died. And his kingdom is becoming, is, begin, is beginning to fracture a little bit. And one of his generals named Nabopolassar has seized this opportunity to seize power. And so General Nabopolassar has gone way over here to the edge of the Assyrian kingdom to a town called Babylon. And he has conquered, he's attacked and conquered Babylon and made himself ruler. Now he's pretty far away, you know, from the seat of power, but, and, and things are in disarray because Ashurbanipal has died. Nabopolassar is a general, and he begins going up the Euphrates River, which is this river right here. He goes up the Euphrates, and he begins to just pick off town after town after town after town, expanding his empire. And the city of Nineveh, the capital city, is in his sights at the time that Jeremiah is called. Okay, So it's into this world of danger and chaos an assassination and political intrigue that the Lord called Jeremiah. Look at verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You may think that's unusual, that 
Jeremiah would be called, not only was he called while he was in the womb, he was called before he was conceived, is what that says. The Lord knew him and called him. But Isaiah's call, Isaiah was a prophet about 100 years earlier. Isaiah's call was very similar. Isaiah 49, Isaiah says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. There are a lot of references in the Bible, both specific and implied, about being called at or before birth. In Luke 1.15, John the Baptist was called before birth. Galatians 1.15, Paul reveals that he was called from birth. You can probably think of others in your head, Samson. You know, there are just others that that you can tell from their stories they were gifted and called from birth. Samuel is another one. You know, you can just kind of go through the stories in your head and you know that these people were called either at birth or or before birth. But that did not make these people different. In fact, that made them the same as us because all of us are called by the Lord. From before birth. You are called. You were called. You have been called. You have an identity in the Lord. And a purpose. That was established before you were born. And I want to show that to you. I want to look at Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8. The topic sentence. Paul, you know how Paul writes. He writes really long sentences. So his topic sentence is in verse 16. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Which is kind of a strange way of just saying that God says, God promises, the Holy Spirit promises, Jesus promises that we are God's children. And Your own spirit within you knows that to be a fact. It says our spirit testifies that we are God's children. So if you don't know you're God's child, the problem is not that you're not called or you're not God's child. The problem is with your ears. (laughs) You know, the problem is with your listening because Your spirit knows you're God's child, and God's spirit knows you're God's child. So now skip down to verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, which just simply means those God knew beforehand, those those that God knew before they were born. That would be everybody, right? That would be you. Those God knew before he was born, he also predestined, and that's just a word that just means he destined us, okay? He also destined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That simply means to be formed like, to be fashioned like Jesus. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So if you kind of put that verse into regular language, it would say, For those God knew before we were born... He also destined 
to be fashioned like Jesus, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. God intended us to be formed like Jesus. And go on to the next verse. Those he, he predestined, you know, everybody he designed a destiny for before we were born. He also called. And if you look at the Greek, that Greek doesn't mean just called. That, mean, that Greek means called forth by name. Those he called forth by name, he also justified. That means he made innocent. And those he justified, he also glorified. Glorified just means filled with glory. It doesn't mean pins a medal on you. It means he fills you with glory. So what that says is everyone that he designed a destiny for, he also called forth by name, made innocent, and filled with glory. That's you. He called you forth by name. He made you innocent. And he fill, has filled you with glory. This is past tense. This has happened. He did it all. He called us into being just as he called the world into being. He formed us just like he formed Jesus. He made us innocent. He filled us with glory. If God is for us, who can be against us? So the question is, do you think of yourself like that? Do you think of yourself as having a name that is so basic to who you are that it expresses who you are? It's the name, it is, it is the very essence of you that God called you forth. Do you have a clue what your destiny is? Do you have a sense of your calling? Of what you're called to be? Of what your gifts are? You know, if, if you don't, how are you going to find that out? It's not going to be by sitting in a class listening to me talk to you. You have to have a sense, number one, that that destiny exists. You have to actually believe that it's there. Otherwise, you're not going to recognize it if he beats you over the head with it. And the second thing is you have to somehow have a dialogue with God. You remember those doors and those prizes that we did at the beginning? You know, if you're out there making choices in your life and you're going by what the package looks like, you know, you've cut off the communication layer. You need a lifeline. And that lifeline is that dialogue between you and God. So think about the state of your dialogue with God. Is your dialogue with God one way? Is your dialogue with God a series of petitions? Is it, please God this, please God that? Take, that's okay. I mean, that's all great. And that's a big part of the dialogue with God. But now take a second and strip out all that out of your prayer life. What's left of your conversation with God? Are you hearing anything from God? And what does that look like? And that's a real question I would love to know. 
you know, what is it like when God talks to you? How does that look like to you? What does it sound like? It's okay to say, I don't know. <laughs> For me, in the Word, <clears throat> when I'm in the Word, He never fails to meet me right where I'm at and speak to me through His Word. Mm-hmm. And when I do get something from Him in the Word, I have the joy of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. and so you can feel excited. it. Uh-huh. I have energy, I mean, I just feel lightness. Mm-hmm. But when I don't stay in there or stay in dialogue, and when you asked about you know, strip away all that other stuff. What's left is asking for his will and guidance in uh-huh. my life. Uh-huh. And when when I feel that, when I'm open and I'm really being focused and turning my face toward him for that, then I have a lot of joy. Yeah. When I don't, if I'm going about my way making my own choices, a lot of that joy is gone. What does it look like to you guys? How does God talk to you? You know, nowadays it seems like it's very tough to hear him sometimes when you're just drowned out by the media and the sound of this world. You gotta really, you gotta listen intently and hard. And And how do you do that? You know, you need your quiet time. Kind of the Sabbath idea? Yeah, the Sabbath idea. (laughs) Take out all the external influences as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And and just, you know, yeah, you need to, obviously, pray is is number one. And you need, I think, you may need to be persistent about it. Um, and you may, I don't know, you may not, you may not hear it the first or second or third time. Mm-hmm. You need to keep on. Mm-hmm. And when he answers you, how does that answer come? Well, for some people, it, it is a, you know, I've said it before, sometimes it is a, it is a hit over the head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you just don't hear, you don't hear that well. Mm-hmm. It's a lesson minus the B. It's a blessing minus the B. <laughs> blessing minus the B. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's cute. But yeah, like, like Mary said, it, it is uh, a lot of joy in, in, in your heart, probably. But you know, I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm not gonna, you know, make anything up here. It, it it's tough, and, and it's tough, a lot of times I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it, it actually, you know, when you talk about the Sabbath, uh, it really, you know, it, it actually saddens my, uh, saddens me, saddens my heart that, you know, we we don't take that as serious as we should in this world. I mean, nowadays, who, who takes it serious? You know, yeah. Chick-fil-A. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> A fast, a fast food chicken restaurant. You're know? <laughs> <laughs> honking your horn. <laughs> I wanted a chicken sandwich today, darn it, and I want it right now. And, and that's the problem. Yeah, is that we, have, you know, we've gone so far away from all of that. Yeah. That, geez, how do you find your way back? Yeah. And 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 learn about it all, and and it's it's very tough. 
Yeah. It's much more holistic, I think. It's God is about the relationship. And the the thing that I liken it to is a little child, a baby, an infant learning his mother's voice. That infant did nothing more than be in proximity to his mom. And he came to know her voice. And that's the way we learn the voice of our God. By being in proximity to him in his word. Okay, Jesus said, if you knew him, you'd, you know, if you knew me, you'd know my father. And the converse is true. If you knew the father, you'd recognize Jesus. If you're in the word, if you're close to people and observing people and living with people who know the Lord, you'll be able to observe how they hear him and how they live. That's why community is so important. You know, that's why church is so important and why it's so much more than just once a week. That's why we need to be together with each other because we speak the the voice of the Lord to each other. And it's like there was, I know y'all have heard this joke, but there's this this guy that, you know, fell overboard from an ocean liner and it was like, oh, oh, oh man overboard, man overboard. And they threw out the, the, you know, life rings to him. He said, oh no, that's okay. God's going to rescue me. And he wouldn't take the life jacket that they threw overboard. And so he's out there dog paddling and pretty soon a, a motorboat comes by and says, oh, let us help you. Let us get you out of the water. He says, oh no, that's okay. I've prayed. God's going to help me. And he wouldn't get in the motorboat. The motorboat goes away and pretty, pretty soon he's getting tired. And pretty soon a, a chick on a ski-doo comes by and she says, man, you know, just hop on board. I'll take you to shore. He says, oh no, that's okay. I prayed and God is going to answer my prayer and he's going to save me. And of course, the guy drowns and he goes to heaven and he says, God, you never saved me. And God says, I sent you three boats. <laughs> Get in one of them already. That's what it's like. God is sending you people. He's sending you classes. He's sending us counselors. He's sending us recovery courses. God is in the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. You know, God is in the resources of our community that we have. So reach out and grab his hand. Grab his hand. The whole point is to recognize him in those things. That it's not the power of Alcoholics Anonymous that saves you. (laughs) You know, it's not the power of the preaching at church that saves you. It's not the power of the counselor that saves you. But you must go to those things and reach out. Because all of these things are ways that God talks to us. And as, just like that little child gets to where, if he's out on the playground and his mama calls, Joseph! Well, he knows that was his mama Dumb sheep know the voice of their shepherd, separate from the other voices. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We are, the scripture says, we are just like dumb sheep, and we are at least as smart as a dumb animal. 
And God can certainly teach us his voice. We just have to be aware. And that's what it's talking about in the scripture when it talks about they have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. Right? If you don't know who you are, if you don't know what your calling is, if you don't know what your gifts are, who, if you don't know what you have to give to your family, to your community, and to your church, then go back to the Lord and ask him to show that to you. And he will. He's dying to show that to you. He already died to show that to you. This is something he desperately wants. He does not want us to get lost in the media shuffle. But part of the reason Sabbath is so important is because you have to be intentional about listening to God and looking for him and learning his voice. So, Jeremiah, of course, didn't quite see how he could be destined to be a prophet to all the nations. In verse 6, he said, But sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. And the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. And that's what the Lord says to you. Don't say in your heart that you are not a prophet. How do you know? Don't say in your heart that you're not an apostle called to plant churches. How do you know that? Don't say in your heart, oh, I can't teach. We are all called and we all have a role to play in the body of Christ. You were called forth by name, just like Jeremiah. And if you turn your face to God and become intentional about asking him about this, if you're not afraid to ask him, I mean, there is a risk in this, right? Because if you recognize that you're an apostle or a teacher or a whatever, then you kind of have to do something about it. (laughs) That's the risk. And that's why we don't ask, because we don't really want to know. Would you agree that you may not want to assume you have a spiritual gift until you're already using it? Okay, the question is, should, should you not assume you have a spiritual gift until you already use it? And um, I think there is a sequence of events here. The very first prerequisite is to look at yourself in the mirror and say, no matter how hard I try, I will never measure up. The second step is to say, Jesus, I trust you that no matter how far short I fall. It's okay with you because you made it okay. You said so. 
until you get past that, until you can truly say, until you can see yourself as broken as you really are and as sick as you really are and as warped as you really are and be okay with that and know down to your toes that God is okay with that, that God loves you simply because you trust him. Until you do that, all the rest of this is, 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 is not worth talking about. So you have to get to that point. At that point, you have entered the door. From that point forward, you are on a path. A path of maturing. And just like any process of maturing, you need different tools at different stages. At the beginning, you need a lot of help and things need to be explained in a very basic way. And that's called milk in the scripture. Okay. And as you begin to internalize that and learn and to hear the voice of your Savior and to, to recognize his hand in your daily life and to feel his healing touch on those terrible places you saw in the mirror, then as you progress beyond that, you will begin to see that he has placed seeds in your heart that have always been there. Those seeds are the gifts that he gave you. And in most people, they haven't grown. They're just seeds. Some people have developed have recognized and developed those gifts, but they've done it in a worldly way. And so it would be things like I shared with you all about corporate Gale, you know, about, about my, my abilities and gifts of authority and quick thinking and teaching and things that I had that I have highly developed, but I have used to bludgeon other people with. Okay. And so many people, even though the gift has blossomed, it needs to be pruned back drastically and started along a different path. So most of this is about asking the Lord to open your eyes to the seeds that are already in your heart and to show you where you have misused your gifts and to show you what gifts you have that you had never suspected. And then the next part, as you mature and begin to learn, he will put little object lessons in your path and will help you grow those gifts. As you become part of the broader Christian community, the, the body of Christ, you will begin to see how your gifts complement others gifts. You'll begin to understand the things that you were sent to do, the, where your place is and where your place is not, and where you need to be able to rely on other people. And that's where the Holy Spirit begins to weave his work, because he's the coordinator and the giver of the gifts. 
And so he begins to weave us together in ways that use all of our gifts for the glory of God. And you can always, there are gifts that are there for the asking that generally are not given until they're asked for. And some of the, I can't give you a full list, you know, but one of them is, is wisdom. Asking for the gift of wisdom is, is worthwhile. And it takes a very long time to grow. A gift of humility is something you can ask for and is available to all of us for the asking. Faith, I believe. The gift of faith, I believe, is there for the asking. So just being aware of them and and truly asking for them and then being willing to take the, the pruning of the gardener For example, watch out when you pray for the gift of patience. Okay? Because all of a sudden, situations are going to start happening in your life. (laughs) Um, God is faithful, and he will grow these gifts in your life. But each of us has ones that are peculiar to us and special for us. So what are we doing on time? We're about out of time. Um, so Jeremiah thought this sounded a little scary. Uh, and one of the reasons was the Lord said he was being sent to kings, plural. He wasn't just sent to the king of Judah. He was sent to kings and nations, the Lord said. And any one of those kings were notorious for killing whoever said something to him they didn't like. That's how all those prophets got dead, remember? <laughs> and, and here Jeremiah is being called to be a prophet. You remember that, that story I shared with you last time about um, Elijah and calling down the fire on the altar and all that stuff? And how there were 400 prophets of Baal and 400 Asherah, 450 Asherah prophets that Jezebel had. And one Elijah, you know why there was one Elijah? The rest of them had been killed. Jeremiah is saying, oh, not me. Thank you very much. No, thank you. And God said, no, this is important, and I'm going to protect you. Verse 8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Because Jeremiah wasn't just sent to Judah. The Lord is warning him he will be sent to many nations and many kingdoms. I think we better stop there.